0: So one of the things I did in preparation for teaching uh, Hebrews was memorize the book. I'm not quite finished with it yet, but uh, I I will have it finished by the time I get to what I'm teaching. I'm at about uh, chapter 10 now, and probably of all the things I did in preparation for teaching this, the memorization and going over and over and over it had the most impact on me in the sense of making me see uh, things that I'd never seen before. And then as I listened to sermons, read commentaries, having memorized it, uh, it it sort of jumped off the the page to me. So I'm going to uh, uh, quote Hebrews chapter 1 to you tonight, attempt to, and you have uh, the whole chapter in your notes so you can follow along and uh, grimace if I get it wrong, but don't yell out the answer. All right, God, after he spoke long ago to the Father's, through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through through whom also He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the uh, right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels' winds and his messengers a flame of fire? But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom And you, Lord, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They all will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain, and and your years do not come to an end. But to which of the angels did he ever say, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, Let's see. I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? A little rough on the end. but Thank you. So the first line, God spoke. God spoke. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, God communicates to his people. Now, as we get to the second chapter, we'll see that most of the time uh, the agent of communication was an angel. God communicated through angels to uh, the uh, prophets of old. If you read the story about Noah having a conversation with God where he's getting instructions to build an ark and what dimensions to build it, and how many animals to take, and all the details of that. We probably get a fraction of that in the story of Noah and the ark. That was probably an angel that God was communicating to him through. And so you see the many portions in many ways. Moses, God spoke to him in the burning bush. And often it says Moses was in the tabernacle and had communication with God. Joshua had communication through an angel. And so the whole Old Testament... The word of God given to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, are the three classic fathers of the nation of Israel. And so we have the Old Testament written by the early prophets as a result of God speaking to them. God spoke in many portions and in many ways. He communicates to us. And uh, today, people will sometimes ask me, so why do you believe the Bible? what other source do you have if you believe God speaks and communicates that has any level of authority uh, for us, we could ask you and you and you and we would get different answers with every person that we ask. So if we want to have something that's authoritative, something that's consistent, Uh, We have to ask ourselves, God spoke, God communicates to His people. He's a God who has always communicated and always will. And so, as I look at the options available to me in the sense of God speaks, what is the authority that I have? Uh, I land squarely on the Bible that God communicated to us uh, through angels in a variety of ways. In these last days, He's communicated to us through His Son who taught for three years and had 12 people with him who wrote, who had witnesses, and that we have uh, Paul and others that wrote after them. And so today we have the inspired, and errant word of God. And God, if he could create all the billions and trillions of stars and atoms and molecules, can certainly communicate accurately through people and could protect and guard so that we could have something today that we with confidence can say, this is the Word of God. This is His will. This is His instruction. This is how I ought to live. And so I believe that with all my heart, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And if I want to know how to live my life, if I want to know Him personally, if I want to know how to treat my wife and how to raise my kids and how to manage my money, I can read the Bible and find those answers there. So God spoke and today he spoke through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, heir of all things. The word heir is another word, is king. Now, this book is written to Jews. That's why the title Hebrews. And is written uh, to those who had converted from uh, Judaism to being Christians. They believed that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Now, one of the uh, things that every Jew believed in strongly was the kingdom they had had a kingdom under David and it was prophesied that they would have another kingdom and the Jewish people would be free and they would have a king ruling on the planet Earth. And so as Jesus got ready to leave, He uh, was teaching in Matthew 24 and the first question the disciples asked is, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were saying that with great anticipation. And so Revelations describes the coming king, Jesus and the kingdom that will be on the planet earth. And so he says he is the heir of all things. That is, he will be the king of the earth, the king of the kingdom, through whom also he made the world. Now as you think about these Jews that converted to Judaism, they're now going back, abandoning their faith in Christ because of the persecution. And so this pastor, he preaches this sermon And the very first chapter is probably the most thorough, the most eloquent statement about Jesus that's in the Bible. It's just one statement after another about who Jesus is. And so he says, he appointed him heir of all things, and through him he made the world. And so those who would say that Jesus uh, was created, he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, of the glory of the Father and the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation of his nature. All that God is, the Father, so is Jesus. The Father is omniscient, omnipotent, uh, so is Jesus. Everything that the Father is, so is Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. You ever read, some of you more than others, um, uh, science, physical science, uh, biology, uh, and uh, hear the term atomic glue. That was the word used back when I was in school. I don't know if they still use that, but uh, you've got, the, you all know how the atom is, and there's little things spinning around, it, nucleus and, and, and all that kind of stuff, and the planet's going all around, and question is, what holds that all together? Uh, Everything is more space than it is solid when you start looking at a picture of an atom and a molecule and all that uh, exists and it's things spinning around other things very fast and what holds that all together? And uh, nobody really knows the answer for sure that doesn't believe in God, but the Bible says... He holds all things together by the word of His power. Colossians says the same thing. It's the power of Jesus that holds everything together. Uh, he is infinitely power. He's omnipotent. When He had made purification of sins, that is when He died on the cross, Jesus was God, equal with the Father, in heaven, infinite in power, omnipresent, all-knowing, and he emptied himself, the Bible says, emptied himself, stripped himself of all that he was as God. The the reference in Philippians is a picture of someone taking off their clothes, as it were. He stripped himself of being omnipotent, all-knowing, omnipresent, all the attributes of God Jesus set aside, and then he entered into this world as a single-cell embryo in the womb of Mary, grew in her womb for nine months like we do, was born, and when he was born, he was as weak as we are. He had no character like we don't when we're born. He didn't know anything more than we know when we're born. He was God-entitled, but he had no power of God. He lived like we do with all the weakness, with all the temptation, with all the struggles that we do. He grew in character. He grew in stature. He grew in wisdom like we do. He experienced everything we experience. When he had made purification of sins, he was nailed to the cross and God the Father did only what he could do. He reached into the future and plucked every sin off of us like apples, put them on Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 5 says he looked at Jesus as if he actually committed them. And Jesus, uh, Isaiah says, felt the guilt of our sin every person that was ever born or would be born, he felt the guilt, the shame of that sin, and then he felt the pain of the Father turning his back on his own son, something that had never been done for all eternity. And he poured out his wrath on his son Jesus, he died on the cross, he spent three days in hell, he was buried, he rose again, and he's alive today. All of that in order to pay the price of my sin and yours when he had made purification of sins, when he'd taken care of the price of my sin and yours, when he said on the cross, it is finished. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And uh, he's ruling with the Father, predominantly in heaven, though the Bible also says that he lives in us, in our heart, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So the Jews had a, a really high view of angels, they were the ones who spoke the word they were the ones who uh, guarded uh, the nation there was gabriel and others and so they thought highly of angels and so the writer of the hebrew says jesus is much better than the angels having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they for to which of the angels did he ever say you are my son the father declared that concerning jesus you are my son Today I've begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So the term begotten. If you remember a a couple of months ago, I preached a sermon in uh, on Sunday in the nine and eleven o'clock service about that phrase begotten. There are groups, cults, that would point to that and say that means that Jesus was created. At some point in time, he was created by the Father. And that's what it means to be begotten. So, if we were to have a discussion and I were to ask you, let's suppose a, a person who believes that Jesus is not eternal, was created by the Father, and uses the word begotten, what would your answer be? If he asked you, what does that mean if it doesn't mean created? And... Uh, the word begotten is the phrase that's used when Jesus became flesh at the point of conception with Mary. Uh, I've a uh, big, long study on that topic. If you want to go back and, uh, to the website and download that sermon, you can. And uh, I'm going to preach it again on Sunday morning, but not in this uh, service because we won't have one next week. And so I'm going to do that on Sunday and then skip it. For this one, so we'll talk about it just a minute. To be begotten means Jesus left heaven uh, Mary was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit at that moment Jesus the man uh, in flesh was begotten and uh, the only begotten of the Father now when he emptied himself of all that he was as God he obviously changed form He moved from being uh, in appearance as God to looking like Jim or somebody similar, maybe more hair. Uh, We don't know for sure. So after Jesus was crucified on the cross and buried and rose again, the disciples uh, hung out with him for 40 days. Jesus cooked breakfast for them, and then he ascended to heaven John in the, uh, in the book of Revelation has a vision where he sees Jesus. So the question is, did Jesus go back to exactly who and what he was before uh, he left heaven, before he emptied himself of all that he was as man? And uh, the answer is no. When he made that descent into manhood, the flesh, He was restored as God with all the attributes of God, but he remained um, like us. Paul says that when we see him, we will know him because we will be like him. That's not talking about our character. That's talking about our appearance. We will be like him physically, and he will be like us. So the question is, why did Jesus make that sacrifice of emptying himself of all that he was as God, changing what he looked like in form, uh, and remaining in that form? Why would he do such a thing? And the reason is obvious, I think, is because he wants to fellowship with us. He wants to know us. He wants to relate to us. And so for all eternity, we will see Jesus. We will talk to Jesus. We will fellowship with Jesus with a level of intimacy that will vary from person to person depending on how we've lived our life here. But He is the only begotten. He became flesh. Uh, he lived like us. He died, rose from the dead, ascended back to the right hand of the Father. But He maintained an appearance that we will relate to, see, talk with for all of eternity. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, that would be the next coming of Jesus, the second coming when he establishes the kingdom on the earth. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, who makes his angels wind? His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. So there's a number of groups that will make this statement. No place in the Bible does is Jesus ever said to be God. And uh, that's an easy statement to disprove, but this is one of them. Your throne, O God. This is the Father speaking to the Son. He calls Jesus God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. And again, declaring He will rule on the planet Earth during the millennial uh, reign on the Earth, and He is God. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So this is an Old Testament prophecy The writer of the Hebrews quotes the Old Testament continually more than any other New Testament writer. Um, So if we would make application of that passage uh, to me, to you, you have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. That was Jesus. So that ought to be me. I have to love righteousness, hate lawlessness. Hate lawlessness not in you, but in me. And it isn't that I don't hate lawlessness in the world, but it's not a statement that would uh, justify being a judge, but it is a statement that um, I hunger and thirst for righteousness in myself. I grieve over my own sin. Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am, in regards to his own sin. So, I pursue righteousness, I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I want to be as holy as God is, and when I sin, I grieve over that, I feel guilt over that, I feel remorse over that, and sometimes people sort of feel badly about that, but that's the best sign that you are indeed in the family of God. If the Spirit of God lives in you, the first responsibility of the Holy Spirit when He was sent by the Father in John 16 is to convict us concerning sin. And when you ask the question, what is exactly is the Holy Spirit's role in my life? The quick answer is to give me power. Major emphasis in the New Testament is to convict me of sin. And so Paul says in Romans 8, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a son of God. If you have the Holy Spirit, one of the things that the Spirit of God does in you is convict you of sin when you um, mess up, you grieve over that. Now, we don't like that experience of grieving, of conviction. And so Paul says that some have seared their conscience. Uh, They've calloused their conscience because... They don't like feeling guilty, and so what we tend to do is get involved in this self-talk where we say, well, I'm not so bad. I'm better than Ted. Uh, I'm not so bad. I don't do what Bill does, and uh, it was my mother's fault anyway. And so we justify, we excuse, we blame, we compare in an attempt to sort of deal with our own guilt and make it so it doesn't feel as bad. And one of the things that we really ought to do is uh, rejoice over that because it means we're alive spiritually and that God is working on our heart, moving us into Christ-like character and pointing out to us what is wrong, what is sin. And so when we grieve over our sin, when we feel guilty over our sin, we ought to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And we deal with that not by excusing, justifying, blaming, but by confessing it. That means we own it. Fully own it with no excusing, no justification. I did it, I sinned. And uh, the Bible says when we confess our sin, when we own it with no excusing, then He forgives and He cleanses, He empowers and He changes us. So it's really important that we don't ever allow ourselves to self protect by excusing, justifying that we own to the fullest extent, any and every mistake, sin, even small ones that we make, because that's the power that transforms us from the inside out. It's what God loves. He loves a broken and contrite heart. You hated lawlessness. You loved righteousness. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness, anointed you with the oil of gladness, So the greatest desire of any person on the planet earth is to have joy. Is to have joy. To be happy. We look for that in money. We look for that in fishing trips. We look for that in cars. We look for it in vacations. We try everything and anything to find joy. And uh, a clear statement of scripture is repeated over and over again. God gives joy. God gives joy. Not the world, not experience, not things. God gives joy. He takes joy away. He gives joy to those who please Him, to those who please Him. And in fact, we sense His pleasure uh, when we live righteously, when we pursue righteousness, when we grieve grieve over sin. We sense His pleasure in us, and we're anointed with the oil of gladness above our companions. So if you want to be better than someone, be better in the sense of you're happier not because of anything you do other than the fact that you uh, grieve over your sin, you hate lawlessness in your own life, you pursue and desire to be more than you are. You, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, the beginning. What's that word mean? The Beginning. So everything but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are created. Every angel is created, the devil was created, every atom, every molecule is created. So every created being means that at some point in the past there was a time when nothing existed except the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when the first atom was created, I don't know what was first, whether it was an angel, whether it was a um, helium molecule, whatever it was that was first, what was that? The beginning, that was the beginning when the first thing that was created was created. At that point was the beginning. In the beginning, Jesus was there. He was there. He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of of your hands. I was reading uh, the other day about uh, the Hubble picture, photograph. What do they call that? Pardon. The Space it's when they turned, left it on in one spot for a long time and got all kinds of uh, new uh, stars and galaxies. And, and I was reading about this Hubble uh, photograph and uh, the number of stars and the distances between them, and it's absolutely uh, mind-boggling. Uh, the size, uh, the number, uh, the extent, of the creativity the heavens are the work of the hands of Jesus. He created it all. The Father spoke and Jesus created it. They will perish. All those galaxies, all those stars will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same. And again, this pastor who's preaching and teaching um, is communicating to people who are thinking about abandoning their faith in Jesus and going back to Judaism. And so he says, uh, Jesus was in the beginning. He created the heavens. He created the earth. They all hold together by the word of his power. You are the same. Your years will not come to an end. And then he says this, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And so Jesus will rise above all the enemies of God and they will be under his feet. And then one of the coolest verses in the Bible, are they speaking of angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So I'm going to heaven. I'm going to inherit salvation. I'm going to live with Jesus forever. So I have angels assigned to me, ministering spirits. That means they take care of me. They protect me. Uh, They herd fish up next to my boat. Um, So it would be interesting if we could see. I don't know if you remember the Old Testament story about Elisha, and the king of of uh, the Northern Kingdom was trying to catch him because he kept tipping off the king of Judah when he was coming, and so they surrounded the city. And Gehazi, his servant, was with him and he got up and he sees all these chariots around the city and he gets pretty shook up about it. And he says, Elisha, we're in big trouble. And Elisha says, don't sweat it. And so he prays and says, God, open his eyes so he can see. And and then he saw all these angels everywhere, all around them. And they made the army blind and Elisha takes and leads them into the city of Jerusalem. Um, And I read that story and I think, Lord, it wouldn't be that hard for you to let me see angels just for five seconds? It would be kind of fun, but so far he's not letting me do that. But if we did, let's suppose right now, um, I bet I have more angels than Tom. How many do we have? I don't know. How big are they? I don't know but they are assigned to us. And uh, they are ministering spirits. They protect us. And uh, one of the things that it says, Jesus said about children, he says their angels get to cut in line. They get to cut in line when it comes to going to the Father for assignments. They have immediate access. And so your angel... When they go up to heaven to get an assignment, they've got to stand in line. Remember Jacob when he had the dream of the angels ascending and descending from heaven? That's, they're going up to get an assignment, uh, figuring out what to do with you, and then they're coming back and carrying it out. And so if you only have one, I uh, hope he's a fast angel because you're going to be there with nobody helping you out for a bit. But uh, Jesus makes that clear statement, children, they're angels. They have immediate access to the Father. And uh, I, when I prayed for my kids as they were growing up, as Patty and I did, I often prayed, Lord, would you commission a few more angels and would you give them extra strength so that they can protect and guard our children from demons and from danger and from temptation so that they uh, grow up to be champions for you? Daniel prayed and angels w- responded to his prayers. So I figured I can pray and angels will respond to mine. So we have angels around us taking care of us. Uh, We have joy based on how hungry we are for righteousness, how hard we pursue it, how much we hate lawlessness in our own life, how much we grieve over sin. And uh, Jesus is our Savior. He is our King. uh, He is our Redeemer. And uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, follow Him. Follow him. He has earned it. He's deserved it. He paid a price we can't comprehend for our redemption. He now protects us, leads us. And so he is our Lord, our King, our Master. He purchased us with his blood. We don't belong to ourselves, we belong to him. And a lesson that Hebrews repeats over and over is saying, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, you are King, your Master. I will follow you, I will obey you, I will do whatever you ask, no matter how difficult or how hard it is. Uh, That's a good thing to say every single day. And I look forward to seeing you, because when I do, I will recognize you because you're like me. You became like me so that I can live with you, so that I can be like you, fellowship with you intimately forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We love you very much. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for emptying yourself of all that you were as God, becoming like us, living a perfect, sinless life, taking our sin upon yourself, being punished, and being alive today to show that you are going to bring us to yourself. We're going to live with you for all eternity. And I do pray that each one of us, Lord, would not be complacent about our own frailty, our weakness, our sins, but we would We would hate that sin in us and we would pursue righteousness every single day. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.